All right, so we are, uh, we're actually in week three of our, our four-week series, um, short summer series on um, what Jesus says. And in case you've forgotten, in case you haven't tracked with us, what we're doing is we're actually looking at some things that are a little bit iffy, okay? Things that people have questions about. Um, what we're doing is we're seeing, what does Jesus say about that topic? And then once we know what Jesus says about a topic, we get to look and see how the New Testament church, how the authors in the New Testament, as they, as they spread things out, how they expanded the church, how it is that they took Jesus's words and put them into practice. And that's going to be really critical for us as we understand what the church should be and how the church should operate. And so far, we've looked at things like baptism. Uh, and I think our conversation on baptism a couple of weeks ago has influenced uh, some folks' decision to be baptized, to follow Jesus in obedience in that way. And so we get to do that. Uh, we talked about faith and boldness. And um, listen to me. There is no call. There is no place for reserved, wimpy, weak faith in the God of the universe. I mean, think about it. You are here this morning because you're following, presumptively, uh, maybe you're here this morning because you were drugged, uh, maybe you're here this morning because somebody said, I will buy you lunch, but only if you come to church first, whatever. But presumptively, you're here this morning because you want to follow the God of the universe, and you want to follow the God of the universe, and you're going to tell me that you can do that with lackluster, wimpy, weak, flaccid faith, and I'm going to tell you that is ridiculous. There's no call for that. There's, there is no call for that. And we continue today and, and we deal with the topic of worship. What does it really mean to worship God? What does it really look like in the church? And what does Jesus have to say about worship? And how does that play with tradition? And so we get to do these. And this is um, fun, if not a little touchy stuff for us to navigate. You probably know this, I think I've told you before. When I was a kid, I went to two different churches um, with each set of grandparents for a while until my parents got frustrated, irritated, bored, or just quit going, whatever, whatever the reasoning was. But first was, was a, uh, a Presbyterian, a little Presbyterian church. Actually, it was a huge Presbyterian church, but there were only a little number of people in it. Okay? Um, so we, we went to this church every Sunday, um, and it was social because my, my grandparents went and we would go watch Bears games after the service. Right? So my dad would sneak out early to go pick up the pizza so that it would be waiting for us at grandma's house after we walked the two blocks back to her house. My brother and my cousins and I always got to walk home with Aunt Helen, which meant we always got to stop at what used to be 7-Eleven and get a treat and then finish the walk home. Everybody got to eat theirs right away, but for any of you that know me, you'll understand that I didn't get to open mine until I was home and sitting down because uh, apparently I couldn't be trusted with my church clothes. <laughs> it was a thing. I'm over it, mostly. <laughs> then, a little bit later, as I got to be, you know, 11, 12, in the middle school age, started going to um, a little Southern Baptist church, uh, First Baptist Church in Kelowna, Illinois, only Baptist church in Kelowna, Illinois, um, but First Baptist Church in Kelowna, Illinois, Southern Baptist Church, and uh, um, they were a little bit different, as you can imagine. So here, here I am with, with no church experience. We, never, we didn't talk church at home. My parents had a Bible. 
Um, it was tucked away in a thing somewhere, and it came out every once in a while, uh, maybe to read the Christmas story or to do something. But went to this Presbyterian church, and it was, uh, for those of you that have come from a, a faith tradition like that, it was really reserved. It was very liturgical. A lot of repetition. We would, um, we would repeat certain things every week. We would sing the doxology. We'd, we would do a lot of different kinds of things. Um, and there was, man, you didn't, you didn't laugh. If you had to sneeze, you did it as quietly as possible. And when your grandma gave you some pocketbook candy, you know what I'm talking about? You unwrapped it as carefully as you could because everybody would turn and stare at you. But there was worship at that church, steeped in tradition. But there was bona fide worship at that church. And then, and then I, I ended up at this Southern Baptist church, and it was different, man. It was, it was um, not quiet and reserved, and you weren't really worshiping unless you shouted amen at least once, right? And you weren't going home until somebody answered the altar call. Didn't matter. Like sometimes you'd, see, you'd be singing like the fifth verse, the fifth last verse of Old Rugged Cross, and you'd see people looking at each other in the sanctuary going, who's going up? Because you got Pastor Ed. Pastor Ed would stand up here, and, and he, would, he would always, microphone here, hand here, and he would tell you, that God was telling him somebody needed to respond before we left today. So then people would be looking around at each other. It was me last week. It's like, you know, you go up there. And, and so they, there was worship at that church too. As different as can be from one another in a Sunday morning experience, there was worship. And as different as they could be from one another, they were both steeped in ridiculous tradition. And they were both wildly ineffective in reaching the communities they lived in. One of those churches has since shut down, and another one is probably down to about 40 members, the average age of which is about 75. It doesn't have long left. And the reason for that is because while they worshipped, and they worshipped well in their way, their traditions blocked them from reaching the communities that they lived, respective communities, not together, from the communities that they lived in. And so as we get into scripture today, we're going to see what does Jesus have to say about worship? What does worship really look like? And what is the mission of the church? And how does this tie in with tradition? And we're going to see how this all plays out. Because the reality is that tradition isn't bad. I say tradition, and there's two camps of people in here. Uh, half of you, uh, half of you um, would look at tradition and you would say, oh, traditions are awful. Um, anything that's traditional should be shunned. By the way, um, shunning traditions is a tradition. Okay? You can't have a church without having traditions. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to navigate this, but some of you, when I say tradition, traditional traditions, you get upset at traditions. Some of you, when I say traditions, you get upset at me because you think I'm going to say we have to change them. See, we, we, tend to, we tend to break into two camps in this. One is that if it's not broken, don't fix it. That's a, that's a terrible mentality. It won't work. We'll see that in scripture. The other is anything that you do more than three weeks is a tradition and you ought to kill it. Well, that's a terrible mentality. That doesn't work either. Okay. 
But worship is the necessary function of the church. We, as a church, need to be about the act of worship. And whenever there is corporate worship, traditions will naturally emerge as an aid to that worship. We have traditions. Every church has traditions. Some follow them um, more strictly. Some will change them as time goes on. But tradition is a natural byproduct of corporate worship. And traditions, by and large, are a matter of form or preference. You know what's interesting? Uh, for anybody that thinks there's a natural way that we have to worship. And I've had this argument before. Somebody, somebody has said to me, I wonder if the early church would look at what we do and recognize it as worship. And I'm going to say this, I hope not. And that's okay with me. If the early church doesn't recognize what we're doing now, if they don't like our music and they don't love the way we do sermons and they don't think that the things that we talk about are, we're terribly, that's okay because it's a different culture. What you're going to find when you read through the New Testament is that the New Testament is absolutely silent on forms. What the New Testament does is tell you what it is you are supposed to do. We are supposed to worship God. You are supposed to make disciples. In some cases, we have ordinances. You are supposed to baptize. You are supposed to uh, celebrate communion and the Lord's Supper. But what the early church doesn't give us, what Scripture doesn't tell us, is a roadmap for exactly how those things are to happen. Those are forms that God gives us freedom and we have freedom to navigate those because the world that we live in and minister in and worship in and reach out into today is significantly different than the world that the disciples reached out to and ministered to in their time. The world is different. Therefore, we worship and we minister and we reach out differently. We'll see that as we get into Acts 15 a little bit later on, but, but uh, we're going to jump in here first and see what Jesus has to say. Last thing I'll tell you about this is simply that traditions are amoral. They have no morals. Traditions aren't wonderful and righteous and holy. And traditions aren't evil um, and, and needing to be destroyed. Traditions are amoral. The catch with traditions is whether or not they aid our worship of the God of the universe or whether or not they get in the way of our worship of the God of the universe. And we'll We'll tear into that as, as we move. So, ooh, we're going to start here in John 4, and uh, we'll see here. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles, John 4. We're ultimately going to check out the first 20-some verses of this, but, but uh, we just have a few on the screen there. But um, the scenario is this. Jesus is traveling uh, to um, Galilee, and he's going uh, through Samaria. Now, the problem with going through Samaria is that that's a no-no for Jews. See, Jews don't go to Samaria because Jews view Samaritans as unclean. Okay, and this woman that he's going to have a conversation with knows that. Um, in fact, they probably, his disciples, we don't read this, but if they're like any other rabbi, rabbis wouldn't walk through. They would actually spend a half a day's journey walking around Samaria so that they could get to their destination without having to say that they lowered themselves to walk through this land, right? Okay, uh, it's like me, when, I, when I'm driving somewhere, if I have to go through St. Louis, I don't want anywhere near the Cardinals, right? I'll drive around it. So that's not true, but you get the point, right? 
Okay, I won't because I'm, I'm lazy, but, but otherwise I would. Otherwise I would, but because I'm a Cubs fan. I just offended some of you. Scoreboard. Anyway, all right, we got to focus. So, here, so here's what happens. So most Jews would walk around, okay, but, but Jesus says, no, we're, we're traveling through, and he's hungry, and he's tired, and he sits down at a well, and he sends the disciples off for some food, because this is the moment Jesus has for a divine appointment. The disciples don't understand this. They just think he's hungry. They go get food, but Jesus knows this is a moment for a divine appointment. So he sits at the well. He sends them away, and a woman comes up to the well, Okay? And here's the interaction Jesus has with her. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, why are you asking me for a drink? Okay? I thought it should have been obvious he was thirsty, but she wants to know, wait, wait, wait time out, you're breaking all the rules here. The rules say you can't have anything to do with me. The rules say, as a Jewish rabbi, you can't even talk to a woman with nobody else around, much less a Samaritan woman, much less take something from me that would make you unclean, much less put it into your body, which would defile you completely. But Jesus says, give me a drink. He flips the script a little bit. And he says, you know what? If you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't ask me this processing question. Like, how can you ask me for a drink? If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. I would forgive you of your sins. I would make you brand new. I would fix everything that's broken in your life. I would make it all okay if you would just ask me. And she says, okay, give me some of that. I'll take that water. And he says, okay, well, first go get your husband. And she says, very accurately, I don't have a husband. And he says, that's right, you've had five. And the guy that you're sleeping with now, he's not your husband either. And she says, whoa, apparently you're a prophet. I have an idea, let's change the subject. That's exactly what she does. As you follow the story along, she then says, okay, well, we're, we're not going to talk about that anymore. Instead, you're a prophet. I'm going to ask you a spiritual question. Your ancestors say that when we worship God, we need to go to Jerusalem. My ancestors say we do it here on Mount Gerizim. Which one's right? Okay, little history lesson. In about 730 BC, the northern kingdom, uh, well, we should go back even further, um, we have first kings. We get Genesis, and then we see Exodus, where uh, the Jews are in exile um, in Egypt, but then um, God sends Moses, and they're liberated, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They're given the law. They're given the commandments. They're, they're told how to behave as a nation, um, and after appropriate time of discipline for their, their whining and complaining, God brings them into the promised land. So we get to the book of Joshua, Okay, Joshua takes them into the promised land. They conquer the promised land. They spread out. They, they settle it. They don't exactly do what God tells them to do. And so uh, because they don't follow his, his will completely, um, they're ensnared by other nations and the religions that they practice and the fake gods that they follow. 
And then we get to the book of Judges where the cycle is Israel falls into sin because they're following false gods. Then they're oppressed because God disciplines them. And then they cry out for mercy to the one true God of the universe who sends a judge that delivers them. And then they live in harmony with God for a while and they prosper and then they fall into the same pattern again. That's the book of Judges. And finally we get to the book of Samuel and and the people cry out for a king. They want a king, they want a king. It's not the right time for a king, but God consents and God gives them a king and the first king is Saul. And Saul is awful. He is a terrible king. It's almost as if God is saying to them, you wanted a king? Then we'll give you the best king of your people. And Saul was. He was head and shoulders above the others. He was handsome. He was commanding. He was strong. That's what the word tells us. I didn't decide he was handsome. The Bible says that. Don't get all. Bible says it. And, and he's commanding, and, and so people follow him. But Saul does wicked in the eyes of God. And and so God says, okay, you had your chance. Now I'm going to show you mine. And, and he brings in David, a little boy, who he anoints as king. And then the right time he brings David to the throne. And he promises David, it's the Davidic covenant. He promises David all of the blessings. And that he'll always have a man on the throne if he'll only follow him. And David stumbles, he messes up, but he always repents. His heart is good. And, and David then honors God. And then he has a son, Solomon, who becomes king after him. And, and Solomon asks for wisdom, and he starts off well. He builds the temple at David's behest. Um, you know, God allows him to build the temple where we worship and all of this. And, and so Jerusalem becomes the epicenter of Israel, where everyone comes to worship, because that's where the temple is now. So everybody comes to offer sacrifices. Everybody comes to celebrate festivals. Everybody comes there, but then Solomon sins. He sins because he decides that, let's be blunt, he decides that sex is better than God. And so he chases women. And when he chases women, he ends up chasing their gods. Instead of worshiping the God of the universe that he built a temple for that has blessed him beyond measure, he chases other gods as well. So the God of the universe, the one true God steps in and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rip this kingdom away from you. I am going to rip this kingdom away from you. Because I love David, and because I made a promise to David, I will leave your line with two. Remember, there's 12 tribes. With these two tribes, we call that Judah in the divided kingdom era. But he takes the 10 northern tribes, we call that Israel, and he rips it away from Solomon's line. And we see that come to fruition with Solomon's child, Rehoboam. Rehoboam um, has the top 10 kingdoms seed from him and under Jeroboam become king. And so now we have two nations, the, the southern of Judah and the northern of Israel. There's a problem though in the northern kingdom. This is where Samaria is at the time Jesus is living. The problem in the northern kingdom is Jerusalem is in the south. And Jeroboam becomes king and he does not want to send his people south to worship because then he's afraid they won't follow him. They'll follow Rehoboam. He says, I want to keep control of what God's given me, which is weird. He says, I want to keep control of what God's given me. So I'm going to make up my own rules about worship. And instead of sending his people to Jerusalem, he creates two golden calves and he puts one at the north of his kingdom. And he puts one at the southernmost tip of his kingdom, which would be Mount Gerizim. And that's where 
Israel. That's where the Samaritans would go to worship. And so this woman says, okay, now fast forward. We are, we are 750 years later, 750 years into the future now. And this woman says, well, you Jews say that you go worship here in Jerusalem at the temple. My ancestors say we worship here on this mountain, Gerizim. Which one's right? And so she changes the subject. He says, look, I know you. I know your soul. I know how jacked up you are. I know how messy you are. I know you're sinful. I know that there's nothing righteous even close to you. You say you've, you're not married. You're right. You're not married. But you're sleeping with everybody else's husband. There is nothing good in you. And I know you. And she says, okay, well, tell me this then. Where am I supposed to worship? How do I make it better? Do I go to the temple in Jerusalem? Or do I worship here on this mountain like my ancestors thought? And Jesus' response is this, and it's instructive for us. He says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Basically, what Jesus is saying is a time is coming where it doesn't matter anymore, where you can worship wherever you want anymore, where your religious traditions will stop being important. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship because he was always wrong. It was always a picture of God made up in a golden calf that they would worship. You Samaritans know very little while we Jews know all about him. Get that. You're going to have different versions that will say that differently. This is, this is the best translation of the original Greek. You Jews know all about him. That, or I'm sorry, the Jews know all about him. That should sting Jewish people. Because the goal was never to know about God. The goal was to know him. It says, you guys know all about him. Good for you. You guys know nothing about him. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The time is coming where it doesn't matter what mountain you're on. A time is coming where knowing about God is not good enough. A time is coming where true worship, real worship, is in spirit and is in truth. And then he says, indeed, the time is now. And he can say the time is now because he's here, right? He's here. And so we get this, this sense that believing about Jesus is just not good enough. Believing in Jesus is the key. Some of you have been coming to church for years and years and years and years. Some of you teenagers are still wrestling with this. Some of you uh, that, are, that are new to church are trying to navigate this. Listen carefully. Believing about Jesus, knowing about God, that's great, but it's woefully insufficient. Jesus says a time is coming, indeed it's here now, where true worshipers, they worship the Father in spirit and truth. Knowing about him is no longer good enough. You must believe in him. You must submit to him. That's what this looks like. And so take that. It's like when it comes to worshiping in spirit and truth, the heart always trumps the tradition. Going to Jerusalem, being on the right mountain, being at the right temple, that's all fine and good. But Jesus is saying, look, no, 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 no. The time is here where the heart is what matters, 
Not the tradition, not where you go, not where you stand, not how you do it. The heart is what matters in spirit and truth. And some of you really wrestle with that. Anybody here, uh, you don't have to raise your hand. I, I, I know there's some of you here. Um, but anybody here that's come from a more reserved tradition, and, and some of you here, this is the more reserved tradition from the places that you've been, right? Uh, but many of you um, that have come from, from uh, denominational backgrounds, you come here from, from a more reserved tradition, and you come here and you're like, whoa, 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 time out. What in the world was that about? Like, church is over, people are going home, and you're like, time out, whoa, hold up. Um, we didn't say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we can't be done. Like, oh, time out. We didn't sing that one thing. Where was the, where was the forgiveness? Of, where, where was the, the, the reciting of the prayers? Where was the following along in the hymnal? Wait, oh, time out. Can't be. And it's weird, and I know that. I get that it's weird. You're like, well, we didn't come up and do communion this week. How, how can that be? Or I never had to kneel and stand and kneel and stand. What, what is that about? Listen. The reality is this, the tradition is less important, significantly less important than the heart. And if you're here and you're worshiping with your whole heart, whether it looks like it used to look for you or whether it looks drastically different than it used to look for you, if you are here and you are worshiping with your heart, then you are worshiping in spirit and truth. That's it. That's how it works. And so all of the sudden, the instruments that we use for worship, I meant the religious instruments that we use for worship, they stop mattering as much as the heart. The musical instruments we use in worship stop mattering as much as the heart. The placement of things matters nearly, uh, not nearly as much as the heart. What words I use. All of that stuff pales in comparison because Jesus comes on the scene and he says, look, yeah, 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 yeah. The Jews were right. Okay, you know, he glosses over that. The Jews were right because they knew more about me than your people did. But that doesn't matter because a time is coming. It's here now where if you want to worship, you worship in spirit and truth. So tradition has its place and tradition is fine, but it is secondary. It is so much smaller than the fact that you know me and you believe in me and you're worshiping in spirit and truth. And that's how you worship. And in doing that, I mean, Jesus mocks tradition, which is a dangerous game to play. Eventually, it's one of the things um, that, at least from an earthly perspective, leads to his death. We get here, Matthew 15, 2, and there's another scenario where um, the Pharisees, they travel to Jerusalem to talk to Jesus, basically to accuse him of breaking tradition. And it says this, says, this is a Pharisee talking, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Okay? Uh, now, by the way, the Pharisees had, in about the 450 years since they'd come back from Babylonian captivity. See, again, we walked through 
uh, the Old Testament, and we see that the two tribes, we've got northern tribe, we've got southern tribe. The northern tribe um, never has a righteous king. They're always messed up because of this two calves that they try to worship instead of going to the temple to worship the God of the universe. Okay? And, and so they never have a righteous king, and God sends Assyria, the nation of Assyria, when they're the world power, and he basically wipes them out. It's discipline. Not all of the tribes, but them as a nation. And then we've got the southern kingdom, who sometimes has a righteous king, sometimes has an evil king, sometimes a righteous king, sometimes an evil king. Parents, teach your children well. Because almost always, I'm not singing Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I see it in your eyes. (laughs) But teach your children well. Because almost always in the history of Judah, it's a righteous king followed by his own son who is wicked. Teach your children well. Okay? But eventually, with the northern kingdom already wiped out, the southern kingdom is so wicked that God judges it, and they're taken into Babylonian captivity. If you're reading the Old Testament, that's the time of Ezekiel and Daniel. And they go into Babylonian captivity, and God says that after 70 years of judgment, I will send them back. And in 70 years, he does. He has King Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, write a decree that says all the Jews get to go home now if they want to. And so uh, many Jews go home, and, and when they get there, there's a sect called the Pharisees who are like religious lawyers, and they follow the law to the very letter. And then here's what they do. They start making up extra laws for good reason. They make up extra laws because what they don't want is they don't want you to break the law of God, so they put in like three buffer laws. So if you don't break my buffer laws, then you'll never actually break the law of God, right? It's like, you know, guardrails, right? Well before you fall off the cliff, you'll hit the guardrail and correct. And so it's not a bad idea. But over time, what happens is those laws and traditions that they put in place, they become so important. They become as important, if not more important, than actual worship. Think uh, John Lithgow and Footloose. Who's seen Footloose? Come on, admit it. Okay, right? Drinking is bad. We know this. Underage high school drinking, listen, in case you didn't know, kids, underage high school drinking is bad. Okay? We know this. So what does he do in Footloose? Well... (laughs) We're going to say no dancing, because when you dance, that's when you drink, right? So he puts in a buffer law that's supposed to keep them from getting to this one. It, I didn't say it was a good movie. It's just a thing that's in the movie. doesn't matter. But that's what the Pharisees do. They set up this system, and here we are 400 plus years later, and the system has become so important. And they come to Jesus and they say, why do your disciples disobey? Our eight? They're, they're asking the God of the universe, in flesh, God incarnate, why do your disciples break our traditions of ceremonial hand washing before they eat? And Jesus um, is going to respond in a not so favorable thing. But what they've done is, and this is instructive for us now, they've inextricably connected worship with their tradition. And what they've decided is that you can only worship when you do it a certain way. And I'm going to ask you for gut check time here. Some of you in this room, on both ends of the spectrum, some in a much more traditional, some in a much more contemporary fashion, but many of you in this room have made those same decisions in your own heart. We can only really worship 
when it's done a certain way. Right? We can only really worship when we sing hymns. We can only really worship when there's a fog machine. Why are you laughing? I'm having these conversations on both ends. See, some of you think that's ridiculous. I think this one's just as ridiculous. I mean, this one is too. Both. But, but this is what happens. And it's exactly what the Pharisees did, and it's exactly what Jesus is going to rebuke. This idea that you've connected... By the way, I like fog machines. I'd be okay with it, although I think it might get a little choky in here. I like hymns. But I think it, it's, not, but it, it's not about what I like. Jesus says that you have to, you have to get past your preference, and, 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 but they've taken what they prefer, and they've connected it to worship. So what they've said is, it only really counts as worship if you do it this way. See, the Jews were following the law. They weren't eating unclean foods. Not at this point. They weren't eating unclean. They were only eating what they were supposed to eat. But the Pharisees came in and said, well, it doesn't really count as worship if you're not doing this other stuff with it. It doesn't really count as singing praises to God if, if it's not um, at least 60 years old. Or it doesn't really count as singing praises to God if it wasn't on the radio just yesterday. It doesn't make sense. But that's what happens. Okay? But Jesus, here's what he says. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And what did we say? When you worship in spirit and truth, it's with your heart. It's not believing about Jesus. It's believing in Jesus. He says, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship is a farce. That's an indictment. They're pretending. They're acting. They're showing up. And they're saying the right things. And they're posting the right stuff on Facebook. And they're going through the motions. And they're doing all of this stuff. Right? And they're, and they're, they're being public about it. They're making a big show of it. But deep down in their hearts, they aren't surrendered to me. Deep down in their hearts, they're far away from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God. doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so we know, okay, that even though certain religious traditions can add richness and meaning to life and worship, and when they do, let's use them. But when we elevate them, no matter how old they are, no matter how helpful they are, no matter how new they are, when we elevate them to sacred standing, we've got a problem. And that's what Jesus had to say about worship. He says other, uh, and, and tradition, he says other things, but, but all of them come back to this issue of worship is a heart matter. And you worship in spirit and truth when you worship with your whole heart. And he's constantly correcting the Pharisees about their traditions, and that's what he has to say. And the disciples are walking with them. They're hearing him as he shares those things. Okay? And so then we get to this early church, and we see how it's played out. And in the early church... Any talk about worship and tradition almost always has to do with the mission. Okay, it has to do with the mission. And we view it as the liquid and the container. It's not mine, it's a Leonard Sweet analogy. But, um, but what we see in the early church, and we're going to see this in Acts 15, what we see in the early church is that they separate the function of the church and the form of the church. 
the function of the church, the mission of the church is non-negotiable. By the way, the mission of the church comes from Jesus. It's non-negotiable. The mission of the church is to make disciples. Everything that the church does should be in service of the mission of the church, which means that everything we do as a body of believers here ought to be about making disciples. There are people in our community that are going to hell. That should motivate us something terrible. There are people that I love dearly that are going to hell. There are good people that try hard to live a good life that are going to hell. You say, why won't God do something about that? Well, he did. It's called his church. And he gave us one mission. The mission of the church is to go and make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And it is to storm the gates of hell that will not stand against us. It's the mission of the church. And it's non-negotiable. And it happens with the gospel. And the gospel is this precious liquid. The gospel never changes. The gospel message, Christ crucified, is always truth. No matter where you are, no matter when you are, no matter what culture you live in, no matter what time that culture exists, the gospel message always stays the same. It's precious and it cannot be messed with. There are churches that mess with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We have nothing to do with those churches. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is sacred. But the container that holds it can and must change to fit the culture that you live in. Think about it. You have this life-giving drink. But you're trying to give it to people that don't know they want it. Shouldn't the container that I put it in be something that engages the people I'm trying to give it to? The container has to change to fit the world we live in. And we get the first time we run into this is in Acts 15. See, what happens is we have a group uh, of Pharisees that have become Christians. So they're Christians of the Pharisee sect. They are believers. The Bible is clear in Acts 15. They are believers. They are Christians. Okay? Uh, we would call them Messianic Jews today. Right? Jews that have submitted to Jesus but still followed their Jewish heritage. They're Pharisaical, okay, from the sect of Pharisees, Christians. And they come along and they see what Paul and Barnabas are doing on these missions where they're sharing the gospel with Gentiles and Gentiles are coming to Christ in droves. They're being baptized. They're, they're going out and they're making disciples. And the church is building through Gentiles and these Pharisaical Christians come along and they say, oh, time out. That's not okay. They've got to be circumcised first. Circumcised is code for they have to become Jewish. More or less saying, they can't be Christians unless they follow all of these traditions that we follow. They have to do it our way. And it gets so heated that this is where we get the very first church council. In Jerusalem, they travel. I mean, they're on a missionary journey, but it's so important that they stop their journey and everybody travels to Jerusalem to meet with the disciples and to meet with the Jerusalem church, and they have a church council. In the church council where they're arguing back and forth about whether or not you need to be Jewish or not, Peter stands up and he says, okay, look, 
You know that I was a Jew among Jews. You know that I followed the law. And you also know that at one point in time, God came to me, and we read about this early in Acts. He's on a roof in Joppa, and he's praying. And God comes to him in a vision, and he speaks to him audibly, and he says, you know what? There is no more unclean. Get up and go to Simon's house. Um, no, get up and go to Cornelius's house. Cornelius was a Gentile. Peter doesn't want to go to Cornelius's house. He's never been inside a Gentile's house. He doesn't want to eat with Gentiles. He doesn't want to be unclean, but he does what God tells him. Good idea usually to do what God tells you. He goes and God says to him, hey, teach them. He teaches them. They submit to Jesus. They become believers. They're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Peter sees that the gospel is for everyone. And he stands up in this council where they're arguing and he says, this happened to me. I did this because God said it. And so here's what we believe. This is a grand statement. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get past this. Peter stands up and he says, no, 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 no. Listen, there is no other way that this happens. There is no other thing that happens to make us saved. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to do any other kind of thing. All you have to do is trust in the grace, the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's why in our statement of faith, um, you know, we say in our belief statement here at Blessed Hope, uh, some of us will talk about this in the membership class today. Uh, you know, after talking about who Jesus Christ is, we say that he atoned for the sins of all who trust in him alone. There are many statements of faith out there that will tell you that Jesus died for sins and that you access that through means of grace that the church gives you. Many churches here in town that will tell you that. You access the forgiveness of Jesus by going through rituals in the church. How is that different from being circumcised? How is that different from needing to become a Jew first? But I read Peter, and Peter says, we believe that we are saved by the same, uh, we're all saved by the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. There is no other thing that you have to go through. There just isn't. And then Peter stands up, and, and uh, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas stand up, and they share everything that's happened. And, and they're still arguing and debating. And finally, James, the brother of Jesus, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church at the time, here's what he says. He stands up and he says, and so my judgment is this. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I want you to look at that statement, write it down, underline it in your Bible, write it on your notes, do something with it so that you do not forget. And so... It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, unless you are here from Jewish heritage, say thanks. Go ahead. You can do it. It won't hurt you. It's like a conversation I have with my kids. It doesn't hurt to say thank you. It don't cost you nothing. Because that's you and I. We are the Gentiles that James is referring to. And James says, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's in our DNA. 
as a Christian church, that's in our DNA. As Blessed Hope Church, it's in our core values. It's in our DNA. We are relevant. We have a core value that says we will be relevant in the world that we live in. We will make a difference where and when it matters. We will not put stumbling blocks in front of people. We will be as inviting to people as we can. And if they are going to trip over something on their way to the cross, it's not going to be us. And we are going to be bold. We are going to do things that haven't been done before if we have to, to reach a community that's on its way to hell. Why? Because it's our judgment, agreeing with James, that we will not make it difficult for people that want to turn to Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the church. And the mission of the church is non-negotiable. Listen. The mission of the church is non-negotiable, and it's to make disciples. And everything that we do is in service to that mission. And I tell you what, if there is a tradition that helps us lead people to worship, then we are going to employ it, and we are going to exploit it, and we are going to use it. And if there is a tradition that gets in the way, not of our worship, we can gather together as believers, and we can worship in any way, shape, or form. But if there's a tradition that gets in the way, then we are going to discard it. Because what's our judgment? We agree with James. We will not make it difficult for the Gentiles that are turning to Jesus Christ. We won't get in their way. We won't stand in their way. Nothing. And can I give you a word of caution? Watch out for that I just feel statement. Many of you, if you know me well enough, you're like, well, that guy is as far from traditional as you can get. It's actually not true. If you were asking me, Matt, if you could craft a service that everyone would love, it would be a whole lot more traditional than you would think. But nobody's really ever asked me that question. And frankly, it don't matter. And it don't matter because you know what? The kind of service that I might love isn't going to do squat for lost people that need to find Jesus. Not in this culture that we live in, not in this time and place, maybe 40 years ago, not now. Remember I told you about Broadway and how it was dying, the Presbyterian church that I was a part of? Lives in a heavily Hispanic community. It's about 40 people, average age of 75, that are about as white as you can be. I served there for a while as an interim pastor actually not even a pastor. I, I didn't get to do any leadership with them. I tried. It didn't necessarily work. Um, I just went to preach once a month while they were trying to figure out who they were going to hire. And my advice to them was hire Hispanic. Your church is dying. You live in Hispanic community. Yeah, it's going to look different. Yeah, you're going to sing different songs. Yeah, you might even have to do some things that are bilingual but your community will be reached with the gospel in a way that you aren't doing it, and they refused. And you know what I heard over and over again when I floated that out there was, well, I just feel like that won't be fair to the people that are here. I just feel like that's not really the way that you worship well. I just feel like, time and time and time again, the I just feel like. Watch out for that. Don't do that. Embrace this reality. This 
is not about you. The mission of the church is about the people that need to know Jesus Christ. And the mission of the church is not negotiable. And the mission of the church matters. That's how it works. And that's why we get to do um, fun things like baptisms. Because we are about the mission of the church. We are about people submitting to and following Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to encourage you. Okay, I'm going to encourage you, um, wherever you're at in terms of this, if, if there's submission that you need to do, if there's repentance that you need to do, um, if there's just surrendering to Jesus in obedience, whatever it is, I'm going to ask you to do that in your heart. We want to be worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. Okay, So we're going to pray, and we're going to collect this morning's offering. I'm going to remind you, if you're visiting with us today, you are under no obligation to participate in this offering. That little connection card at the bottom of your bulletin, you can fill that out, drop it in the offering plate as your way of saying um, that you were here this morning. Also, come to the Welcome Center. We've got a gift for you after the service, our way of saying thanks for worshiping with us. Okay? But uh, we're going to pray, and then after we pray and collect the offering, we've got some baptisms, which will just be a whole lot of fun. Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you this morning, and, and, and again, we just thank you for being the God of the universe that loves and cares for us. We thank you that it was your Holy Spirit inspiring the words of James and inspiring uh, the penmanship of the New Testament and all the action that came from that, that it is your judgment that you would not make it difficult for the Gentiles that are turning to Jesus Christ. Because, God, that's our heritage. And we are those Gentiles that have turned to follow Jesus, and we want to make inroads into this community. We want to bring people to real faith, faith that matters, faith that happens with worship in spirit and in truth that makes a difference. Father, we thank you for that reality, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to participate in that mission. Oh, God, it matters so much. Love you so much, and we praise you, and we thank you. Amen.